and that's in Galatians chapter 5, beginning of verse 16. I just explain that when Paul is talking here about the flesh, he is talking about our sinful human nature, that which doesn't want to obey God's law. And when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Verse 16, but I say, walk in the Spirit, and walking, by the way, simply means living. The Bible often uses walking as a picture of the life we lead, leading our lives. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, <clears throat> the sinful desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, disagreements, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have Crucify the flesh with its passions and evil desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. writes to the churches of Galatia, is writing to a group of churches. We don't know which churches they are. The likelihood is, however, that they were the <coughs> churches that uh, the Apostle Paul with Barnabas planted during the first missionary journey and they are located in the southeast of what we now call Turkey. And um, 
he writes to these people because they have problems. They're having real problems. And all those problems derive from the fact that close on the heels of Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, came people from Jerusalem, from within the church of Jerusalem, uh, who uh, we call Judaizers. And these people taught, taught them that you couldn't be a true Christian without first becoming a Jew. And therefore, the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, had to become Jewish proselytes. They had to join the, the religion of the Jews, Judaism, by submitting to the law of Moses. That's the law that God gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And they said, you can't be a real Christian unless you first of all become a disciple of Moses and obedient to his law. Now, Paul tells us right at the beginning of the Galatian epistle that this is another gospel, an alternative gospel, which in fact is no gospel at all. Gospel means good news. But if these people had to submit, these non-Jews had to submit to the Jewish Old Covenant law, the law of Moses, then that was bad news. Because you see, the law of Moses was a law of works, salvation by works. This do, and you shall live. But if you don't do it, you'll die. And that law that old covenant law has been set aside in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has introduced a new covenant. And it's prophesied actually by Jeremiah 600 years or so before Christ came. Uh, Jeremiah said there the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with them when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, even though I was a father to them. Now the only, only covenant, the only agreement that you can break is an agreement based upon performance, works. You can only break a covenant, if the covenant places some obligation on you to do certain things, but you don't do them. Uh, so Jeremiah goes on, not accord, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand, brought them out of the land of Egypt. And this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not say every man to his neighbor, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least unto the greatest. For their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. 
the new covenant is so different and so opposed to the old covenant that in order to that, that trying to mix the two together uh, would produce nothing, no gospel. You can't have the old covenant and the new covenant coexisting. You can't follow both. You've either got to take one path or you've got to take another path. And, and this is made so clear in the New Testament, and especially in the, in the uh, letter to the Hebrews, uh, which is worth studying if you want to follow this up. But the Galatians had many problems arising uh, from this Judaistic teaching. And one of the problems is the one we're looking at this morning. And that is the problem of leading the Christian life. And I, I have three, three headings. First of all, warfare. Secondly, wonder. And thirdly, walk. You'll see how that works out. Warfare. Uh, look at verse uh, 17. Well, read verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires, the sinful desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, and keep you from doing the things you want to do. And that perhaps doesn't convey the, um, uh, the full, full strength of this conflict between the spirit and the flesh, the old sinful nature. Christians still have with them. And uh, I, I want to make two preliminary comments here. Uh, first of all, the words flesh and spirit can mean more than one thing. Okay? So when you're reading your Bible, you have to be careful. Um, and I can illustrate this best by reference to a single verse in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 26, verse 41. I think that's the right one. Um, <clears throat> where the Lord Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, uh, a little way away, uh, he, he goes to them and finds them asleep. He says, now watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Would you not watch with me for one hour? And then he adds this, <clears throat> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, by spirit there, he does not obviously mean the Holy Spirit. He means the human spirit. The human spirit is weak. People get tired. People get, get depressed. And the disciples were weary and they were depressed. And they were, they were confused about what was going to happen. And, and so 
They fell asleep when they ought to have been praying. The flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh there refers just to their normal humanity. The normal human bodies and minds. The spirit refers to the human spirit. Willing to follow Christ, and yet not actually being able to do so because their bodies are weak. In, in those cases, the spirit is the human spirit and the flesh is just the human body and mind. But when we meet those two words here in Galatians, the flesh doesn't just mean the human body. It means the sinful old nature that lives in the, the, in the body. That's why it's called the flesh. It dwells in the body. And when we become Christians, we don't lose that. We shan't lose that until we die and leave this body behind. We still carry with us that old nature with its sinful tendencies and desires. But we have within us the Holy Spirit, if we are true believers. And that's where the conflict arises. And this is an encouragement, I hope, to everyone. You only have that conflict between your sinful nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit. You only experience that conflict, that warfare, if you are a Christian. I suppose you had a ticket for a, a, a boxing match. I don't suppose any of you go to boxing matches, but I suppose you had a, a ticket for a boxing match, or a football match for that matter. And you go along, and you take your seat, and the champion comes in uh, to the boxing ring, climbs into the ring, takes his seat. And then you sit there waiting for the challenger to come. But the challenger has chickened out. Challenger doesn't turn up. There's no conflict. There's no fight. There's no competition. Same with the football team. If the opposing football team doesn't arrive, then again there can be no competition. So if you say, if a person says, uh, <clears throat> I have no experience with that conflict within my heart and soul of sinful desires against the Holy Spirit within me. I, I don't experience that warfare. I don't experience that battle. Um, if you don't experience that battle, it means you're not a Christian. And if you do experience it, it is demonstration of proof that you are a true believer because you must have the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind in order for there to be a conflict between the old nature and the new nature. Well then, this warfare within our, our hearts and minds is it's an intense warfare. If you turn back, I don't have to do that, I'll turn do it for me. Um, in Romans chapter 7, Paul actually elaborates in verse 14, for example, 
He says, well, we know that the law, we talk about the law of Moses, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, no longer, it is not that I do it, the sin, but sin that dwells within me. That's the flesh. The sin that dwells within me. And then carrying on in, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law or principle waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And there, of course, Paul makes it a lot clearer that this is a serious conflict. It is a disabling conflict in our passage. Because of this conflict, this warfare, we cannot do the things that we want to do. Uh, he says they're opposed, the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other and keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, we must realize that that works both ways. The old Puritan, John Owen, uh, pointed this out in his, I think it's in his, in his uh, commentary on Galatians, on this verse. Uh, he says it means that because of the flesh, we cannot do perfectly that which the Holy Spirit leads us to do. But because of the Holy Spirit, the flesh isn't able to do perfectly what it wants to do. In other words, the inhibition imposed by this conflict works both ways. It works against sin and it works against righteousness. But nevertheless, there is a conflict. There is a fight. And if you are a Christian, you know something about this conflict. But our how are we going to deal with this conflict? Uh, who is going to deliver us from this body of death that is the old nature dwells within Paul and caused these problems for him? Recorded in chapter 7. Well, he goes on, of course, to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Christ is going to do this for me. So <clears throat> there is the there is the warfare. And my next heading is the wonder. What is the answer to this conflict? What advice does uh, the New Testament give me uh, to deal with this conflict, to handle it, to make sure it works out correctly, rightly? Well, I want you to look 
ahead in the passage uh, to verse 24, which reads like this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and sinful desires. Now this is, I call it a wonder for two reasons. One thing, it is an amazing truth. The other is that it is barely recognized by most Christians. When I was trying to choose hymns for this morning, I looked in vain for any hymn that dealt with this matter of being crucified with Christ. But it's just not there, at least I couldn't find it. I find anything. If you look up these verses, look up the hymns linked to the verses, which our hymn book allows us to do, um, all the hymns are about the other parts of the verse, but never mention being crucified with Christ. And uh, we're going to just look back um, for a moment at chapter 2 of Galatians, if you can turn to this, and verse 20. Galatians 2 verse 20, where Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now all the hymns linked to this verse uh, talk about Christ loving me and giving himself for me. Very, very valid subject for a hymn for praise and for worship and for wonder. But none of them go back to the root cause. I am crucified with Christ. The, 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 the hymn books and often the pulpits are devoid of any mention of being crucified with Christ. Every Christian will say, Christ died for me. Died to bear my sins on the cross. But you don't find many who understand that we died with Christ. See, it's, it's another aspect of the atonement of, of the death of Christ. Not only that he died for us, we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, writes Isaiah nearly, nearly 800 years before Christ came. Uh, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Christians rejoice in that fact, rightly. Christians understand that fact, that Christ died in their place on the cross. That he was made sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. They understand that, they rejoice in it. 
that you'll find very few Christians who understand what it means to be crucified with Christ. So let's turn back to Romans chapter 6 and see to more clearly, uh, with a little more detail, the things that uh, he has in mind. Chapter 6, in the first seven verses, and we're going to read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? He's writing to Christians, of course. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. Baptism is a representation of this truth. It's not baptism that makes it happen. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, dying with Christ is the great wonder. And that is the great answer, you see, to this problem of the warfare in our souls. As I say, we've gone from, uh, from uh, the beginning of our passage right through to verse 24. Those who, have, who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The New Testament teaches that something happened. Something happened to us when we became believers that identifies us with the death of Christ. That somehow, and, and it's difficult to explain, which is probably why nobody ever writes hymns about it, uh, or why you hear very few sermons about it, that something happened in our hearts when we became Christians that killed something within us, something within us died with Christ. And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised from that death to life, life in Christ. Now the problem, uh, the theological problem that we face is that whilst we have died to sin. How shall they who have died to sin live any longer in it? This poor rhetorical question. Can't. And nevertheless, we have been crucified with Christ, and, and, and uh, we don't live any longer. Says Paul, my old self doesn't live. It's been killed. Be killed. 
nevertheless, I, I do live. I am alive because Christ lives in me. But the problem uh, theologically is this. <clears throat> that if our old self was crucified with Christ and is dead, finished, gone, then how is it we are still troubled by the old nature? Martin Lloyd-Jones always used to draw a distinction between the old man, translated here, the old self, the old man, the old person, who is dead, gone, finished with, and the old nature, which lingers on in our mortal bodies and causes all the trouble. It's very difficult to actually make that distinction, I think, in the New Testament. But nevertheless, it expresses a reality. Just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it isn't true. The Bible teaches very clearly that we are dead to sin, but that we have still the old nature within that fights against the new nature, the flesh fighting against the spirit. But one thing that is clear, and here again we've got to go back to Romans uh, and this time chapter 8. Yes, verse 13, Romans 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Spiritually, he's talking about. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, old nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you see, what, what we are clearly taught is this that we're no longer under the dominion of the old nature. The old nature is not in charge any longer. In fact, we can put to death, we can mortify, to use the old translation, we can mortify uh, the deeds of the, uh, of the old nature. By the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we have the power to more put to death or to nullify the power and influence of the old nature. And that allows us to walk in the spirit. That's my final point. He begins this passage, remember, in verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by or in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to talk about the warfare, the conflict. But, but you see, he said, if you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will be able to put to death the sinful desires of the old nature on a continuing basis if you walk in 
the Spirit. And that gives us something to do. Because if you put to death uh, the deeds of the flesh, we've got to do something. We've got to walk in the Spirit. And how do we do that? How do, how do we do that in practice? How do we walk in the Spirit? Well, let's come to that. Because in verse 22, he goes on to say, as opposed to the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-discipline or self-control against such things he says there is no law and those belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and vice. So walking in the spirit is a process by which we keep on crucifying. It's, it's something that has to be done continually. Keep on crucifies the deeds of the flesh, sinful desires. You've got to keep putting them to death. How? And this is Romans 8 again. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God. Reckon yourselves. Trust in the truth of it. Believe it. Act it out. The word reckon there really means calculate. It's something we can lean on. It doesn't mean imagine. No, you're not asked to imagine that you are dead to sin, dead to the sinful desires of the flesh. It says reckon on it, count on it, lean on it, believe it. So there is faith coming into action. We have to trust the word of God when it tells us that sin has no more dominion over us. Sin has no more demand upon us. We are no longer servants of sin. The old nature wants to make us to serve sin. wants to cause us to displease God. But we don't have to do that. It has not the power to make us do that. Because we have a greater power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And how in practice do we do this? Well, I think the answer is rather simple. It may even seem something of an anticlimax. We must just remember what the spiritual teaching is. We must just remember that the fruit of the spirit, as opposed to the deeds of the old nature, the flesh, are certain things, and, and, and we're, we're told what they are. This isn't necessarily an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty comprehensive one. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what ought to be happening in our lives. Fruit is something naturally born, isn't it? You have an apple tree in your back garden. Um, 
uh, when the blossom goes and uh, uh, it's time for the apples to appear, you don't run out and, and tie apples onto the tree. You don't have to do that because the tree is going to produce those apples naturally. And because the Holy Spirit is within our hearts, there will be a natural production of these good things, things that please God, things that represent walking in the Spirit, living as Spirit-indwelt people. It will all happen naturally as long as we remember, as long as we recall what the Bible is teaching you. So what happens when somebody says something and you feel angry? You want to retaliate. You remember that the fruit of the Spirit is, is peace. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. You can put up with people who upset you, make life difficult for you. I'm sure you've got people like that. Uh, you can do that because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can remember when you are tempted to let somebody down, to die, or, or, or to depart from the path of righteousness. That the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Are you faithful to your promises? Are you faithful to your friends? Are you faithful to your family? Are you being faithful? Now, they may not be faithful to you if they are Christians, but are you being faithful? Are you setting out not to please people, but to please God? And, and I think that this is the secret. We must have these scriptures in our minds. Whenever we are tempted uh, to follow the, the sinful desires of the old nature, tempted to tell a lie, tempted to do something we know is contrary to the will of God, or is going to hurt somebody else, just remember what we are, who we are. Just remember that God has put his Holy Spirit within us and empowered us to walk, to live in the strength and power of the Spirit, bringing forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It will come forth naturally. We don't have to force it. It will come forth naturally from the indwelling Spirit if we remember to put our trust in Christ and to believe that he will indeed show us the path of life, lead us by the Spirit in a way, in a life that is pleasing to God.